Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 34 through the series through the book of Revelation, and the title of our study today is The Rising of the Beast. And today we're going to look at Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first for your word, which is truth. It is living and active, as Hebrews 4, 4.12 says. It penetrates into the very heart of the heart of the matter, and it exposes air. And so, Lord, as we look at this text before us today, I pray Lord, that you would do as you told the disciples the Holy Spirit would do through the word, and that is to convict. Convict our hearts of the truth, but also comfort us with the truth. Lord, because we live in a world where truth is under attack. And so I pray, Lord, as we look at this text, that you would help us, help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to stand in the grace of God. And on the word of God, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, 1 through 10. This is what this text has to say to us today. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering a haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemy against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and to all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Now, in studying Revelation, we constantly need to realize that we are not reading future history out of a newspaper. But we're learning the spiritual realities of our present age through a visionary prophetic book. Picture book, that is. And it's especially necessary to emphasize this approach today when many Christians don't even try to understand Revelation because of the confusing teaching they have heard about it. And yet the visions provided to John and Revelation should be as familiar to believers as the Jesus' well-known parables such as those of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. An example of this is the vision of the dragon, the woman, and the child that we saw last week in Revelation 12. This dramatization of spiritual warfare 
in the church age should provide an easy-to-understand mental picture to all Bible believers. This vision shows how Satan failed to destroy Jesus in his first coming, and that now Satan vainly rages against the church in anger over his inevitable future. You see, a second principle is to remember that Revelation's symbols must be interpreted not from speculations about current events, but from parallels in the Old Testament. An example is seen in the final statement of chapter 12 in Revelation 12, 17. And he, the dragon, stood on the sea, on the sand of the sea. Now the reader familiar with the Old Testament imagery expects some dreadful evil to appear. Since the sea is the realm of chaos and rebellion, a virtual synonym for the abyss of hell. Now the vision of chapter 11 earlier spoke of the beast that rises from the bottomless pit who makes war on the witnessing church in Revelation 11:7. Now that same warfare will be depicted from the enemy's perspective as John watches. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 13, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. You see, the Old Testament prophet Daniel received a vision showing four beasts who represented evil imperial powers on earth. Daniel's beasts represented the empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome that would rise in successive history, Daniel 7, 1-8 tells us. Now, each of these kingdoms would harm the people of God, but it would be ultimately supplanted by Christ. Daniel is told in Daniel 7.18 that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. You see, as John presents a beast like Daniel's, you see him rising slowly out of the dark water, describing each part as it breaks over the surface. Revelation 13.1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And like Daniel's fourth beast in Daniel 7, 7, which represent, represents imperial Rome, this beast has ten horns. And like the dragon of Revelation 12, this beast has seven heads, ten horns, and royal diadems, Revelation 12, 3 tells us. These parallels connect this beast with the Roman Empire and identify him as a servant who wields Satan's might. Now John describes this beast as having ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems, on its horn and blasphemous names on its head, Revelation 13.1 tells us. More will be said about these details in Revelation 17. But for now, they give the impression of the beast as coming with powers, with rulers, with thrones under his control. In fact, in Daniel's vision, the fourth beast's ten horns represented the kings that would arise, Daniel 7.24 tells us. And the fact that these horns... Each wear diadems confirms that they are royal persons. The beast has crowns on his horns, whereas the dragon of Revelation 12 has crowns on his head. Grant Osborne suggests that this indicates that while the dragon is the king of the evil empire, the beast is the military arm of the king. Many commentators assert that the beast's seven heads correspond to the seven Roman emperors after Augustus Caesar, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Vespian, Titus, and Domitian. Well, we're not sure about this interpretation since there were others who briefly ruled as emperors. Simon Kissmacher therefore urges us to see the number 10 and 7 as symbolic of completeness and fullness, indicating comprehensive power and authority exercised by the beast. 
You see, the seven heads may also be intended simply to identify this beast with those of Daniel 7, since between them, Daniel's four beasts had, had seven heads and ten horns, Daniel 7, 3 through 7 tells us. And John's own interpretation also emphasizes the general idea of royal dominion and power. Revelation 3, 2 says this, and, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. William Hendrickson says this, the, the sea beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all the nation and governments, all the world, all throughout history. In the beast, the persecuting power of Satan becomes visible. The beast had blasphemous names on its head, Revelation 13.1 says. This points to the false claims to deity made by earthly powers. You see, the Roman empires gave themselves the title of Lord, Savior, Son of God, and Lord and God. Their earliest emperors were deified only after their deaths, but before long, the emperors began demanding living worship. This was true of Domitian, the emperor that John is writing under, the beastly empire emperor of John's time, who demanded that sacrifices be offered to him in Rome and be required the worship of his image throughout the empire on pain of death. And so as the beast rises further, John describes it more fully in verse 2, which says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. This description combines the different beasts of Daniel's vision, each of which emphasize separate kingdoms. And so the beast is a composite of all the beasts that John, Daniel saw. This suggests that John's beast is greater than that of the individual empires, even that of Rome. The beast from the sea represents all the empires throughout human history that have stood against God and his people. See, the fact that this beast exercises authority for 42 months, Revelation 13.5 tells us, that is for the entirety of the church age, this shows us that this beast represents more than the ancient Rome that persecuted the church of John's time. It represents the entirety of the violent earthly empires that oppose Christ's kingdom and Christ's people. But the question may be raised whether this beast from the sea should be equated with the Antichrist. Well, the answer to this is yes, but only if it's biblically understood. The term Antichrist is used only in the epistles of John, where the apostle spoke of those who opposed the revelation of Jesus. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. This verse states that the Antichrist is a figure who will appear in the end, who is represented throughout church history by many who are like him. 1 John 4.3 says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is the Christ, it has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. This spirit is exemplified in the beast from the sea, which was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, Revelation 13.5 tells us. In fact, Paul teaches in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, there would be an ultimate Antichrist before Christ returns, whom he named as a man of lawlessness. And yet he is represented throughout the church, throughout church history by blasphemous power and opposition to Christ. One of the most significant features of the beast in Revelation 13 is the way that he parodies the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Revelation, Christ wears many diadems, and 
Revelation 19, 12. And so the beast has many crowns. Christ has a worthy name that is written on him, Revelation 19, 12 says. And so the beast bears blasphemous names. Christ has people from every tribe and language and people and nation, Revelation 4, 5. So the beast assumes power over every tribe and people and language and nation, Revelation 13, 7. Christ is worshipped together with God, Revelation 7, 10 says. And so the beast demands false worship together with Satan, Revelation 13, 4 tells us. In fact, in keeping with these counterfeits, John says of the beast, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, Revelation 13, 3 says. In fact, parallels in the Greek text make clear the connection with Christ's death and resurrection. The same word is used to say that both Jesus and the beast were slain, and the same word is used to say that Jesus came to life, as, as it says in Revelation 2.8, and the beast yet lived in Revelation 13.14. Satan best mimics the resurrection so that the whole earth is marveled as they follow the beast, Revelation 13.3 says. Now, most commentators identify this slain but resurrected beast as a Roman emperor, Nero, the evil ruler who savagely attacked Christians. Nero was a clear example of the self-exalting beast, and his rule was so depraved that the Roman Senate finally opposed him, after which he committed suicide in 68 AD. And since Nero was not publicly executed or even buried, a legend developed that he had escaped. And for several decades, including the time when John wrote Revelation, legends anticipated Nero's return to reclaim his empire and purge Rome. And since John identifies one of the beast's heads as receiving this wound and being healed, it is argued that Nero is the one of the Roman emperors whose myth held him to have died and risen again. Well, there's problems with this view. Imagine that and be seeing it. The first is, is that the apostle John believed in using a legend that is historically false since Nero really did die in 68 AD isn't, isn't quite right. Second, John's beast did not commit suicide. He was attacked and mortally wounded, verse 3 says. So a better approach, although we can't be certain about it, it sees Nero's fall as representing the death of the Roman Empire, which after Nero fell into chaos. Nero fell into chaos. And the, emperor, the empire was resurrected, and the Roman general Vespian returned from besieging Jerusalem to restore order and to establish himself as emperor followed by his two sons, Titus and Domitian. So Rome looked as though it had died, but it was revived with new life. An even better interpretation notes that Revelation 13, 14 says that the beast was, was wounded by the sword and yet lived. All throughout Revelation, that sword is wielded by none other than the, Jesus, than the Lord Jesus Christ. And under this view... The beast wound reflects a death blow dealt by Satan by Christ's atoning death and the life-giving resurrection, and by the triumphant establishment of the Christian church and the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet the persecuting emperors, beginning with Nero and continuing with Domitian, represent a revival of Satan's power in a way that would have impressed those who witnessed the Christians' apparent defeat. G.K. Beale writes, Satan's wound appeared to be fatal, and indeed it really was. Nevertheless, the devil's continued activity through his agent, agents makes it apparent to John as though he has overcome the mortal blow dealt him 
at Christ's death and resurrection. While none of these explanations are conclusive, Christians can be sure that Satan and his beast and the beast will seek to confuse the world by mimicking the resurrection of Christ. Jesus taught that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect in Matthew 24, 24. And Jesus added that believers must not follow anyone who claims to be the Messiah, despite apparent miracles or resurrections, since the true Christ has ascended to heaven and will return to earth only at his glorious resurrection, uh, his glorious second coming. Excuse me. He's already been resurrected. Hey, you know what? Sometimes mistakes happen, okay? And it's okay. We correct them. Now, you see, John informs us that the beast has two main agendas. The first is, is that the gathering of false worship to himself and through himself to Satan. Revelation 13, 4 says, And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now, it's a notable fact of history that the most despicable tyrants have, have often been extremely popular. They've even elicited uh, virtual worship from the people of God. One example is Adolf Hitler, who set himself up as a messiah for the Aryan race and was revered by many of the German people, even as their cities were being reduced to rubble by the Allied advances. The relentless conqueror Napoleon Bonaparte continues to be adored by the French, despite having bled their country dry in his ruinous wars. Steve Wilhurst writes, Dictators create their own personal mythology, or if others do it for them. Most of all, they demand people's unquestioning and unconditional submission, something that only God has the right to do. History uh, records exactly what John anticipated Equipped by Satan with the power to manipulate and impress, the tyrannical rulers represented by the beastly virtual, virtually deify themselves. Revelation 13.4 says, Who is like the beast? The people are wrapped in admiration. Who can fight against it? In the Bible, these words are adoringly spoke of God alone. You see, when God led Israel through the parted Red Sea, Moses sang, who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders in Exodus 15, verse 1. The prophet Micah praised God for his saving grace in Micah 7, 18, saying, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? Because he delights in steadfast love. See, God alone is incomparable. And yet through the awesome earthly power of the beast, Satan is usurped, basks in usurped divine glory. In his first epistle, John warns of false signs and, and wonders. First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they come from God. You see, Satan uses supernatural power to win false worship. He sought even to get Jesus to offer him worship during the temptation in the wilderness showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, Satan said. And these I will give you if you fall down and worship me, Matthew 4, 8 through 9 says. See, Christians can identify the false worship of Satan and his beasts when it derives from all power and earthly glory. 
acting contrary to the word of God and drawing people away from faith in Jesus. Whenever we are called to give unquestioned allegiance and worship to a human ruler, we should see him as the beast beyond which Satan withstands Satan in his desperate bid to usurp God's throne. This is not to say that all government is evil. Paul uses his Roman citizenship and was often helped by honest Roman officials. The beast is seen when the government takes the place of God in our lives. Vern Poitras notes that in democratic countries, Satan wants people to look to the state as if it were a messiah. And when the government is set forth as a remedy for all the ills, economic, social, medical, moral, and even spiritual, then the idolatry of the state usurps the place reserved for God alone. And whenever we sing the secular doxology, praise the state from whom all blessings flow, we'll be soon serving the state. But John argues here that the beast idolatry will not be subtle. It will include blasphemies that call for his worship. Revelation 13, 5-6 says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Now the beast may be a pagan who attacks biblical teaching or an atheist who crafts cutting arguments against God's existence. In fact, today's secularists demand that science have the last word about everything, including morality and ultimate beliefs. The Roman emperors assumed God's place more flagrantly, issuing coins with their own supposed divine image. The beast also blasphemes throughout the church age against God's dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, Revelation 13.6. Wicked slander Christians as Nero did when, when he blamed them for Rome's gate fire in 64 AD. You see, the beast will have his servants mock the Christian lifestyle, the Christian worldview, and it will amplify the sins of every prominent believer, and even ridicule even the most godly and the holy Christian virtues as being foolish, vain, and ignorant. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who stood up to Hitler in Nazi Germany and was executed in a concentration camp, wrote, The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the divisions which rend which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of peace. Now the beast goes even further than blaspheming God and Christians. His first agenda is to acquire worship for himself and for Satan, and as a second agenda, it's to violently persecute Christians whenever they refuse to give the worship that belongs to God alone. Revelation 13, 7 says, And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now notice here that it is against Christians as saints, that is, holy ones, that the beast makes war. This reminds us that it was not for our sins and many faults that the world once hate us, it's for God's saving work in our lives. The Roman emperor's demand for worship connected John and his readers directly to Daniel and his friends in the court of the Babylonian despot Nebuchadnezzar, who set up a golden image of himself and required the whole nation to bow down before it. And when Daniel's faithful friends refused to commit idolatry, they were thrown into a raging furnace, Daniel 3 tells us. This pattern has continued in history. Steve Wilhurst writes, whether it was Roman emperors, the Hasperers during the Roman 
Reformation, King Louis, Stalin, or Id Hamin, wherever there's been a faithful church who refuses to worship the beast, the beast makes war on them. And so we should note that John states that the bestial tyrants will generally succeed. Revelation 3, 7 says it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And so it was in the Roman Empire in the century after the Apostle John. Throughout the emperor, persecuted Christians were driven underground, while idolatry flourished everywhere. It was in China when the communists imprisoned virtually every Christian preacher. And so it may soon be in the once Christian West, where the advancement of moral perversions threatened to make merely reading the Bible a criminal activity. Wherever the, the beast has authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth and, and will worship it, Revelation 13, 7 through 8 says. See, Satan's beast will entrench his influence in every corner of the world and every segment of society, ultimately gaining the worship of all who are not protected by faith in Jesus Christ. An analogy to the beast network may be seen in the terrorist cells of the now-defeated Al-Qaeda in the early years of the 21st century, whose bloody web shed blood through the bombings in East Africa, Arabia, Morocco, Indonesia, Central Asia, Turkey, New York, Madrid, and London. You see, Al-Qaeda is an organization that aims for nothing less than the worldwide domination, where everyone will have one or two choices to submit to it or to be destroyed by it. And so it's a fitting represent, representative of the beast out of the sea who advances Satan's idolatrous cause everywhere and with demonic power and authority. Well, John records his vision of the beast to warn believers of what to expect, starting with the churches of Asia that faced the bestial Roman emperor Domitian. And John concludes with three applications. First, the source of our hope. Second, our calling and persecution. And thirdly, the victory we win through perseverance and faith in Christ alone. Where can Christians find hope for salvation against such a dreadful figure as the beast who exercises worldwide dominion and authority? Well, the answer is in the sovereign God who has ultimate dominion and power and authority even over the Satan and the beast and over all of our lives. Notice that the beast here is dependent on what is permitted to him. He was allowed to war on the saints and was given authority over the nations, Revelation 13, 7 says. These things are not said of a true sovereign. God alone is a true sovereign, and he employs even Satan and his beast for his own holy purposes, which include the judgment of the unbelieving world. John reminds us that Christians are eternally secure in the sovereign will of God, he says that everyone will worship the beast, that is, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain, Revelation 13.8 says. This verse teaches that all who believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are predestined by God to be saved, and their names are written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. You see, it is by sovereign grace that anyone's name is in the book, the result of which is eternal life. Such a person belongs to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. You see, Christ's atoning death made the book of life possible, for it was the slain Lamb that became the sacrifice for sin that enabled the people of God to have life. And by trusting in Christ for salvation and worshiping God through Him alone, we can know that our souls are eternally secure, having our names in His eternal book, and thus that we will be kept from worshiping the beasts. 
You see, once when Jesus' disciples reported that they've been, they've been able to cast out demons, Jesus urged them not to rejoice in this, but rather to rejoice that your names are written in heaven, Luke 10.20 tells us. So what matters is our eternal destiny, not our temporal afflictions. What matters about you is therefore not your earthly setting, your wealth, your position, your acceptance in society, power, or influence, but that your name is written in the book of life. Now, we can know this in only one way, by trusting in Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, our Savior and Lord, being cleansed of our sins by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. And with God's sovereign will, providing hope to suffering Christians, John next directs us to our humble calling in verse 10 of Revelation 13. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. Christ's people are told that, that we can expect captivity and even wrongful arrest. And so when this happens, we should embrace it as our calling as witnesses of Christ. Even if we're slain as martyrs, this is God's calling for our, our gospel testimony. But this calling does not preclude us from taking prudent steps to avoid persecution. But it does mean that when persecution comes, Christians must embrace it with faith and a resolve to do the will of God. And we're reminded of the, the letter God sent to the exiles in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah. In the letter, God said that they should embrace their exile as a plan of God for their ultimate salvation. And he says this in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And even when Christians are led to the slaughter, we are to remember God's will through the death of Jesus and understand that victory is at hand. In fact, Romans 8, 36-37 says, In all these things, speaking of the suffering and the slaughter of believers, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And John concludes this passage with one of Revelation's many stirring appeals to perseverance and faith despite all affliction. Revelation 13.10 says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of all the saints. Satan and his beasts, together with their followers, think us defeated when we're put down in persecution. And yet through perseverance and faith, Christians have the victory through Jesus Christ. In fact, John says this in 1 John 5.4, This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I mentioned how Rome drove Christians underground in the, first, in the second and the third centuries. And yet in the 4th century, the emperor himself bent the knee to Christ. And I mentioned how the communists in China arrested all the preachers. But those preachers spent 20 years in prison praying. And they returned with an evangelistic power because of gospel to sweep the country. One of the greatest examples of the triumph through the persevering faithfulness was given by Daniel's friends who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol. They were thrown down in the blazing furnace, and yet they were not consumed, as everyone thought would happen. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar saw them unhurt being accompanied by the one whose appearance was like the son of the gods, Daniel 3.25 says. Christ comes to his faithful, suffering people with blessing and power. And when we possess Christ by faith, despite all persecution, we gain eternal life, justification by grace. Adoption is the children of God, an inheritance in glory. And with these eternal blessings, we also have his daily help. And when we refuse to yield to the beast, but persevere in faith, Jesus 
encourages us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You know, all around us, there are people that say, that argue. There is only one truth. Truth is relative. Truth is relative to how I feel. The thing is, in, in, the, in the Word of God, we have truth. We have the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and binding Word of God. It is reliable and trustworthy for the people of God. And that means that no matter what comes, the Antichrist, capital A, or lowercase, Antichrist, those who deny, as, as John later says in his gospel, those who deny the incarnation and other essential doctrines related to the gospel, you know what? We still have the truth. In fact, Jude 3 tells us that we are to contend for the faith once for all, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to give it to give an answer for the reason for our hope, which and do it with gentleness and respect. When engaging difficult people and those who oppose the truth, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.23 that we're to be gentle with them. We're to be workmen who are ashamed. Uh, in 2, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, many rightly handle the word of truth. You see, the truth is in the scriptures. You want to make a difference in the lives of people? Get in the book. Study the book. Study the Bible. Get in the word of God. Then you'll have an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have, which is only in the Bible, which testifies from from the beginning to the end of Christ himself. See, Christ himself is enough. Christ himself is enough. Christ himself is the truth. You want to be able to answer objections and questions that people have? Guess what? Get in the book. Did you know that the, that the Bible also shaped the history of our society, of our civilization, of our world? There's no way that we would have hospitals, orphanages, and so much, so much more without the Bible. Because it, it teaches us about loving the Lord and loving other people. All because of the grace of God, which makes us new creations in Christ. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us. You have to get in the book. You have to study the book to be able to answer to contend for the faith, to do it gently, to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. And we are living in a time in which truth is under attack from, from gender roles to sexuality to the death and resurrection of Jesus to the authority and nature and purpose of the scriptures and so much more. We need to be a people of the book. We need to be grounded in the book. We need to be shaped by the book. 
I'm going to grow a knowledge of the book because it testifies of the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first for your word, which is living and active. It penetrates into the core of our being. We thank you, Lord, that we can study the truth in your word and that even in your word, you point out air. You point it out so that with the truth, so that we'll know what to expect. You're a good father and we love you so much. And we thank you for Christ, who is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So I pray, Lord, that you would open eyes and open ears to the truth. And by your spirit, irresistibly draw them to Christ and lead them to faith in you and repentance in you so they might walk in you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would grow in love of your word, that they would develop a hunger and a thirst for righteousness found in the scriptures, and that you would, Lord, give them even even greater love for you and for people to see the lost saved, disciples made, and the mission advanced all for the glory of a great name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.